Hello, this is Scott Gillespie, and welcome to the fourth season of Plants Dig Soil. In this podcast, you'll learn how to think critically about regenerative agriculture claims so that you can apply proven and profitable practices that benefit your farm now and in the future. I first heard about biotar about 10 years ago when some research in my province, Alberta, Canada, was talked about at a local conference. All I remember from it is that it didn't really do much, and it may have even made the land worse. There was a company trying to get it going, but with these results, and with very little interest in regenerative agriculture at the time, it did not take off. As I understand it now, the likely issue was that our soils tend to be neutral to high pH. Typically, I see values from 7 to 8, with the most common being in the 7.6 to 7.8 range. Biotar tends to have its greatest effect on acid soils. When it is added to soils, it slowly dissolves into it over a period of about a month. Over the coming season, it reacts with the soil chemistry and entrenches itself more fully into the soil. Most of the components of it resist decomposition and is expected to last decades, if not centuries, in this state. That is the carbon sequestration promise of it. It is also reported to reduce the release of greenhouse gases such as nitrous oxide and methane. Some studies show that it primes the system for more carbon capture. In other words, it seems to help the soil store up more carbon than the input from the biochar. This is promising. However, the opposite has also been found. It also may rev up the biology and lead to more losses of carbon and the release of nutrients from the soil. Understanding the factors that contribute to capture or release still need to be determined before we can count on it for carbon sequestration. The productivity promise for the farmer comes from what it can do for the soil. When you have neutral to more acidic soils, biochar can help to unlock nutrients that would otherwise not be available. It also increases the charge space, the cation exchange capacity in the soil so that more nutrients can be held and released than the soil was able to before the biochar addition. Some studies show that it can hold on to metals and other molecules detrimental to plant growth. How it holds on to the ones we don't want and releases the ones that we do want is beyond my understanding, but for now, I'll go with this. With sufficient quantities added, it can help with soil structure, water infiltration, and water holding capacity. So what is biochar? The most basic answer is it's a product of combustion of biomass in the near or complete absence of oxygen. There may be energy captured from the process as well. The lure of this process is that if it's done properly, it can release more energy than is put into it and produce a product that sequesters carbon, which is the biochar, and this product could help make more productive farms. As you can imagine, it has great promise. When biomass is left to decompose naturally, the gases for energy and the stable carbon for agriculture do not necessarily divide out. The carbon rapidly goes back into the atmosphere as the microbes digest the biomass and the nutrients go back into the system. A small portion, around 15%, of the carbon would stick around in the soil and become long-term organic matter. If you think of biochar as interrupting the natural cycle, you have the best picture of it. 
imagine a forest or a grassland or a mixed area of both. The plants grow and make leaves or woody stems. Typically, at the end of the season, the leaves will fall to the ground and get decomposed over the coming years. In the case of grasslands, some of these leaves would have been eaten and passed through a ruminant, thereby speeding up the process. Historically, in my area, this would have been accomplished by the buffalo. In modern times, this is accomplished mainly through cattle. Trees and other woody plants will eventually die and end up in the ground and get decomposed. The natural process for biochar formation is an intensive fire. We must expand our time scale to millennia here to think of fires moving across the prairie or consuming forests. Instead of thinking of large areas consumed at once, it's more likely that they are patchworks of lands in various stages of growth after fires. By random chance or by indigenous decisions, some areas may not be burned for millennia. Some areas may have been burned many times over the centuries. While it would not be a huge amount, some of the leaves, stems, and trees that were burned would have been burned in this near or complete absence of oxygen. The black carbon, which is basically biochar, that is produced from this is very resistant to decomposition. Some estimate that up to the half the carbon in prairie soils could be from this process. This is not what has inspired the modern interest in biochar. The inspiration was soils that were found in the Amazon region of South America. Most of the forest soils are incredibly old in geological terms. However, wherever humans have lived, the soils are much more productive. It was found that the products of using biomass for cooking, along with the food leftovers, and, of course, the excrement from humans eating food and passing it through their bodies, made for a more productive soil. Again, we must expand our time scales. This isn't something that's accomplished over a few years. This comes from generations living in the same area for centuries. If you take a bird's eye view of the globe, you can see that the modern interest in biochar is similar in principle, but vastly different in scale. We are not looking at small fires cooking food for families. We are looking at large buildings specifically built to burn biomass under controlled systems. We are not collecting forest debris or harvesting a few trees from the neighboring forest. We are hauling in truckloads of biomass daily for processing. We are not just spreading the ashes, excrement, and leftover food scraps in the periphery of the village. We are taking this product and possibly other nutrient sources and spreading it on thousands of acres hundreds of kilometers from the source. This can be a good thing for processing organic wastes that would normally end up getting put in the landfill. However, I wonder how sustainable this is if there are specific areas harvested for biomass to make the biochar, which is then unspread on agricultural land. If this makes the land more productive, I think it can be justified. If it's just a scheme that transports carbon from one area to another, I'm not so sure. As always, if you want to learn more, check out the references in the transcript. This is where I've learned most of what I know on biochar, and these references are packed full of more references if you want to dive deeper. I want
want to now shift to biologicals. Biochar is mainly for the soil. Biologicals are mainly for the plants. I have found many definitions and many divisions of what they are, but fundamentally, they're a product of biological origin that has some promise of helping plants to grow better. The product may have an actual organism or organisms present to do the work, or the product may have the output of these organisms. The easiest biological that we're all probably familiar with are inoculants for legume plants. When planting a new legume, or planting one that hasn't been grown on a piece of land for a while, we usually add these in. They have the direct effect on specific plant and lead to great increases in yield by allowing it to make its own nitrogen in nodules in its roots. There are some new free-living bacterial products hitting the market that claim to be able to make nitrogen for any crop. I've seen conflicting results from these, so for now I'm waiting to see the results from third-party trials until trying them. Biostimulants are products that help to make plants do something it normally would not do. Most of us use biostimulants every day if we consume coffee or tea for the caffeine kick that it gives us. Biostimulant products may help a plant gear up for a stress event ahead of the event happening, helping it to skip the lag phase. The first time I've heard of this was on an episode of a technology show that was looking at the future of farming. Cricket farming was being profiled as a new protein source. And yeah, it's not really for me unless it's hidden in something that I'm already eating. The fascinating part was that once the crickets have been processed, there are vast quantities of their shells. It turns out that if you spread these around plants, it makes them think that they're soon to be invaded by insect predators. And then they upregulate defense mechanisms that help them to get ready when the actual pest is present. The final major division, at least the way I see it, is biopesticides. We all know of BT crops that have, have the toxin genetically engineered into the seeds. The origins of this is a type of bacteria that produces the toxin and then has been used for decades as a spray. Due to its natural origins, it's an approved product under most organic systems. While BT is a specific chemical for specific pests, some biologicals work on the idea that you just need the right combination of organisms to outweigh the bad. I see this with the many seed treatments coming out that claim that by using their product, the biology in them coats the seed and the roots with beneficials that fight off the pathogens. Early results look good, but I want to know what's going to happen in a challenging year. Biologicals get a bad rap in the marketplace. I often hear of them referred to as bugs in a jug or snake oil. This comes from the many, many products coming and going as people promise great returns, farmers apply them, find nothing happens, and the company disappears. Personally, I found very few studies from third parties that show that these products are actually working. There are usually studies from the companies that show how well they work, but oftentimes they have cherry-picked the ones in which they win. Be careful, too, about scientific articles that show their promise. One review article that I will link to in the transcript cautions that though their results show an average of 18% yield increase, this could be inflated because studies that show no effect tend not to get published. In other words, it can seem like new studies are coming out all the time that show great promise. But you're not seeing all of the other ones that show nothing, 
or perhaps a yield decline from using the biological. So let us pull this all together with my favorite topic, biomass. Long-time listeners will know that I talk about this the most. One episode I highly recommend you review is 012, Simplicity in Cover Crop Mixes. Biochar and biologicals do very little for you unless they're also coupled with increasing biomass or preventing biomass from being lost to pests. This should lead to greater yield by producing more and losing less. In the case of cover crops, biomass is critical for the work they do. Suppressing weeds is mostly about taking up space. Suppressing disease is mostly about the quantity of biomass, not just the presence of a plant. Similar to cash crops, the more that's there, the greater the effect. Except that in this case, the effect is not on greater yield, it's on greater impact on your soil. If you're looking at using biologicals, make sure to ask yourself, what problem is this solving? Look for a two-to-one return on investment. For example, if a product costs $20 per acre, you should expect $40 per acre in additional crop yield or prevention of loss. If you get just a one-to-one ROI, all you've did is to help the salesperson make their targets for the year. For a more in-depth discussion on this, go back to episode 018, No Stats, No Effect. ROI needs to be looked at year over year as well. If you use it one year and you solve a problem, you've made money. If you continue to use it year over year, you might be losing in the long term. For example, if you make nothing extra for three years and then gain one year, you've lost over the long term. If you're looking at biochar, you need to expand your time horizons to years. You're likely not to see the results from it for a few years. You may even gain quicker ROI by putting it near the seed to concentrate its effect and help pay for it quicker. Just be sure to ask yourself, does this have a high probability of working? If your pH is neutral to alkaline and you're growing good crops already, it is less likely to pay you back. The future holds great promise for bioproducts. I'm excited to see what will happen in the next five to 10 years. With some caution in adopting and placing them in the right situations, they could be a great addition to your farm. Thanks for listening. While you've got your podcast app open, can you do me a favor? Ratings and reviews really help podcasts to reach new audiences. I have decided to keep my podcast free, so if you want to help me, there's no better way. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed so you see new episodes when they come out. If you prefer email, consider going to my website, www.plantstakesoil.com, and click on the newsletter option. It comes out once a month with new episode listings, events that I'll be at, and carefully curated content with commentary so you can keep up with the essential news in regenerative agriculture. If you don't like email newsletters and are on Twitter or LinkedIn, consider checking out the newsletter option there. As opposed to posts, you'll always be notified of new ones, and I promise to only send something out once a month. I always like to know how people that give out information for free actually make money. 
The podcast is free so that you can learn something new and get to know how I work through issues. If you need a little more help than the podcast can provide, I'm developing self-directed online courses to help you dive deeper into issues. Included in the courses are office hours that should let you have time with me to fine-tune your plans. Details are at my website, www.plantsdigsoil.com. And if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you'll get $20 off. When you need more than that, I provide consulting packages that can be used in person, online, or a combination of the two. Most people start with a Q&A session where I answer your top questions and we get to know each other better. Beyond that, we can move to a farm planning or annual retainer plan. If you live in southern Alberta, Canada, I can provide scouting services throughout the summer with weekly field checks for crop staging, pest presence, and under-irrigated fields, soil moisture, and weekly irrigation plans. I go beyond the standard crops of wheat, barley, canola, and peas to include things like potatoes, quinoa, and hemp. And of course, I love taking on cover crops. My expertise is centered around the Canadian prairies. I have a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture with an agronomy focus and a Master's in Science with a focus on plant science. Beyond my formal education, I've attained and maintained my Certified Crop Advisor designation and am a member in good standing with the Alberta Institute of Agrologists. I use Anchor from Spotify to send this podcast out to the world across many platforms, and it tells me I have listeners from every continent. Oddly, it even says I have listeners from Antarctica. If that is you, I would love to hear from you, or wherever you are in the world. Send me an email or connect on Twitter or LinkedIn. If you use Anchor or Spotify, you can leave me a voice message. See you next time.